Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G. And I am Dr. Rad. And I'm in a very special t-shirt today, Dr. G. It's my oh. All Roads Lead to Rome t-shirt. <laughs> Are you hoping to sneak into my suitcase to come on a certain trip? I'm just dropping subtle hints. <laughs> <laughs> If I can fit you, I'll take you. Excellent, excellent. (laughs) So we have been tracing the history of Rome from the foundation, the traditional foundation date of 753 BCE. And in our last episode, I think, if I remember rightly, we were dealing with 422 BCE. And 421. And 421. So there you go. We covered a lot of ground. Because I remember really the four did. horsemen being very, they were a standout for me. So this means that we're going to be talking about, we're starting at 4.20. And it's a real shame that we didn't record this in April. <laughs> yes, yes, that's absolutely right. We are recording about 4.20 today. So to briefly recap uh, 4.22 and 4.21, which was our previous episode, we we're in for some good old conflict of the orders, Dr. G. Oh, yes. Uh, Well, I love a good conflict of the orders. Hasn't this been going on for centuries now? (laughs) Not quite centuries, almost a century, I think, is probably Mm, the way. We're nearly there. We're nearly there. We've still got, you know, a couple of centuries to go. It'll fly by. It'll fly by. (laughs) We won't won't be dead at all by the time we finish. (laughs) Everything seemed to swill around the situation with Sempronius, one of the guys that's been sent out with some troops, and he's done seemingly a poor job and he's then been taken on to trial for being such a bad general and all of his all of his uh lower down cavalry commanders have come to his aid being like this guy was great and he did the best he could in a tough situation yeah absolutely so we do have this situation with Sempronius which is this fallout from seemingly a not great military encounter that Rome had with the Volscians in 423 Sempronius, the unfortunate and perhaps incompetent leader of said military effort. And we're dealing with the fallout of that. And definitely we saw that some of his men came to his assistance when it looked like he was going to be in danger of being prosecuted or something like that. And then we had even more conflict of the orders. I mean, that wasn't really conflict of the orders, except that it was interesting that it was this fight happening with tribunes of the plebs who were our four horsemen and they'd been involved in the battle in the previous year and then Sempronius who was a patrician. We then got more explicitly into the conflict of the orders in the following year where we had this debate about could a plebeian become a quaestor 
And we had so many interreggae's. They were coming out of our ears, Dr. G. Yeah, it's been a really weird time. Rome is definitely trying to figure itself out politically, militarily. It's been a rough ride. Yeah, it really has. And, but the, re- the resolution was they ended up coming full circle and going back to the compromise that was put forward right at the beginning of this debate, which was that you can have a plebeian quaestor, as in they can run for election, but will anybody vote for them? Time will tell, Dr. G. (laughs) (laughs) Are they going to be able to put together a sophisticated and well-funded campaign? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that's really all we need to know about 421. So let's go into 420 BCE. So 420 BCE, uh, for keen listeners who enjoy uh, the smoking of the green leaf, now is your time to light up because this is happening all year. (laughs) (laughs) We have military tribunes with consular power. Ooh. Mm, And and many of them, I might add. Yeah. Our first cab off the rank is Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus. Uh, a family we know well. Yes, the lineage is continuing. Mm. Uh, and he's had a couple of uh, positions uh, ahead of this one. So we've seen this guy before. He mm. is not a surprise. No. We also have Lucius Furius Medulinus. Mm. <laughs> also previously has appeared and most recently served together with Cincinnatus as another military tribune in 425. Ooh. Yeah, so they've been buddies before and here they are again five years uh, later. Lovely. It's cute. Yeah. We also have Marcus Manlius Vuso, a man for which I don't have any more detail than his name. <laughs> No, that is a, that's an unusual name there, the Vulso, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. It, Manliest not, I've heard before. Yeah, Vulso's not standing out for me one way or the other. We might have encountered one in the past, but I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, no, Manliest I recognise. Mm, the Manliest mm. Gens, they're doing well for themselves. Exactly, yeah. Very Manliest, all the way down their line. Yeah. <laughs> and then Aulus Sempronius Atratinus, also previously a consul in 428 and also apparently a military tribune in the same year. Excellent. So we're getting the gang back together. (laughs) Yay. So they're our military tribunes. And then I also have some tribune of the plebs as well. Ooh. We have Aulus Antistius. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Potentially a relation of Tiberius Antistus, the plebeian tribune of 422. Mm-hmm. So we get another one of the same gens coming through. Yep. Sextus Pompilius. Yep. Most famous because of the Pompilius gens, which means yes. he's definitely of Sabine extraction. Oh. Uh, thank, yeah. Thank you, <laughs> Numa. <laughs> and Marcus Canulinus. And this is known as a plebeian gens. Oh, I have him as Marcus Canulaeus. I must have. It might just be my mispronunciation 
I mean, I have clearly two variant spellings in my notes. So <laughs> ah, <laughs> now that excellent. I'm now that I'm looking closely at them. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, the most famous bearer of the Canuleus uh, name was Gaius Canuleus, who was tribune of the plebs in 445. So somebody that we have encountered before and is the one who introduced the plebiscite on a marriage, the repeal to ban the marriage between patricians and plebeians. Whoa, that's right. I was like, I was looking at that name going, it's so familiar. That's a huge thing to have in your family history. Yeah, yeah. So this guy seems to be, it comes from the same gens as that really famous Tribune of the Plems from a couple of uh, decades ago at this yeah. point. And the family seems to lose prominence after that. So this, I don't know if this is the last cannulaeus we're going to see, but uh, you heard it here first. Well, they're hanging in there. They've got, they've got a fingernail on the box. <laughs> <laughs> Clutching on to the Tribune of the Plebs for dear life. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is where I think 421 and 420 get a bit blendy because I also have an interrex listed for this year, which is Lucius Papirius Mugalanus, who we talked about in our last episode because he's the one that came in and was like, stop this madness. We can't keep having all these interreges. This is crazy. This is madness. I indeed also have Mugalanus down as the mm. interacts for this year, but also, and I have to say, most excitingly, I also have a Pontifex Maximus and a Vestal Virgin. I know. I haven't bothered to do any reading about this because I know that I've got the world leading expert on Vestals and I was like, I don't need to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to take the reins on this tale of woe, such as it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which means you'll finally have, you know, some source material. Very exciting. Look, you'd be surprised about how little I have, even for the festival. <laughs> I'm on board. Uh, I'm on board for whatever you have. It is a tough year. I'm in a really fallow uh, section in terms of source material. As you know, Dionysus Halconassus perennially missing. And even Diodorus Siculus, who is unreliable at the best of times, but we do like him, is also currently unavailable. So that's uh, okay. You know, it's actually this year is actually structured well for us in that most of the action that you wouldn't be aware of happens first, then we get to the vessel. Oh, so okay, that's exciting. Yeah. So I'll just tell you the names of these characters, and yeah, then yeah. I'll, I'll let you get into like the the main action for the year, which I'm completely at like lacking on, on every level. <laughs> so we've got Spurius Manucius is our Pontifex Maximus. Yep. And our Vestal Virgin is Postumia. Mm-hmm. Okay, exciting times. All right, so let me tell you about 420 BC, Dr. G. Nobody remembered anything because of all that stuff they were smoking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that explains okay. a lot about what's going on with my source material. <laughs> yeah. So allegedly we had this period in 421 that, where there were, or, and maybe the 420, who knows, where there were lots of interreges, but they managed to resolve that situation. And at the end of that whole process, they come out with military tribunes with consular power and it's all patricians. All the time, Dr. G. <laughs> Colour me surprised. I, yeah. I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. I know. So one of these military tribunes with consular power, Atratinus, Atratinus, what do we prefer? Oh, look, I like Atratinus, but that's, okay. that's just uh, me, really. 
I mean, don't feel wedded. Don't feel wedded. The fact that we learnt Latin in Australia um, probably means that we're butchering it a lot. Certainly, I know others uh, would pronounce it differently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, there's nothing I enjoy more than butchering an ancient language. All right, I'll go with Atratinus. So Atratinus then oversees the election of Quaestors, which had been the sore point the previous year in terms of who gets to be a Quaestor and that sort of thing. So... There were some keen plebeians in the race. So the tribunes would finally be like, yes, finally someone's actually running for something (laughs) amazing. After they got up and said, like, we're going to abolish it, the whole thing, because none of you are even trying. What's the point of you even having a chance? Exactly. You're embarrassing us. You're embarrassing the whole plebeian class, whatever that is. (laughs) One of them was a guy called Aulus Antistius, son of a tribune of a pleb. No, wait, son of a tribune of the plebs. (laughs) Okay, so the Antistius that I have listed down as a tribune of the plebs is quite possibly either running for Quaestor as well or running for Quaestor instead. I would say it's probably his son. Yeah, I would say it's his son. Okay, somebody lower down on our hypothetical cursus honorum that we don't think exists yet. (laughs) And then then we also have a brother of a tribune of the pleb, the brother of Sextus Pompilius. Oh, what's his name? I don't know, actually. It just says says his brother. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Ah. Pompilius, the other one. We'll call him Pompilius Secundus. Bro Pomp. Bro Pompey. That's what I'm going to call him. Bro Pompey. (laughs) Yeah, so even though these guys are obviously connected to people in power because, you know, they have these connections with guys who have either held the office of Tribune or are currently holding the office of Tribune, the people still couldn't resist the lure, the glow that was coming off the patrician candidates because they have the blood of mighty consuls running in their veins. I mean, you can see it in their... Blue veins. <laughs> when when I get a wound on the front, little consoles <laughs> come out instead of blood drops. <laughs> That's exactly right. So as a result, they don't get a look in. They run and they fail. <laughs> Damn. When are we going to see some power to the people yeah, around and here? And this is what kicks off the problem because the tribunes of the plebs are ropeable, <laughs> particularly Antistius <laughs> and Pompilius, understandably. Because they're like... Yeah, they were pretty invested. What the hell? Like, our guys are just as connected as the other guys. This is actually a burn to us. We feel it. We feel it because it's like an insult that their connections to us is somehow not the same as a console. We're not good enough for you. Like, you only have to have certain kinds of connections in this world. Disgusting. Okay, so they're not happy at all. They're like, the tribunes of the plebs have done so much for Rome. They serve so well. And what about the patricians? They are douchebags. They've done nothing. They screw up all the time. exactly. The patricians are such douchebags. How could no plebeian ever be chosen military, military tribune with consular power and now also not be chosen as freaking Quaestor? What, I'm not good enough to do your paperwork? Look, I think this might in part be related to the way voting is conducted in the ancient Roman world. 
And I'll caveat this being like, like everything with this period of Roman history, we don't know much for sure. But the voting system as it develops seems to really be a a top-down approach. So everybody who's there, who is a citizen, who is male, gets to have a vote and that's fine, but you're voting in groups and those groups are voted from the most senior and hence the most patrician down and it's first past the post. So by the time anybody might even be thinking about bringing in a vote for a plebeian candidate, chances are all the positions have been filled by patricians voting in their buddies. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly it. So I don't know why they're so outraged. It's like the system's rigged against you guys. Yeah, the system is rigged. That's that's entirely the point here. Yeah, exactly. But they are they just can't get over it because they're like they obviously had campaigned hard on behalf of their relatives. They're like, we were personally campaigning, personally asking people for them to vote for our relatives, our son, our brother. Okay, how is this possible that after everything we've done for the people, it hasn't worked? And their conclusion is this, Dr. G, there is no doubt about it. Aulus Sempronius Atratinus has done something dodgy. In fact, it's a <laughs> fake election. Someone called Donald oh. Trump. We've got a fake election here. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that these results will not stand because they cannot yeah, stand. Exactly. Somebody made them up. <laughs> I was so, it, it actually, I laughed and then I felt sad when I read this because I was like, oh my God, the fact that people yeah, are winning like, fake elections is... <laughs> It's kind of like the oddest trick in the book, which is why you have to have a rigorous independent body overseeing electoral process. It's the only way to get it done right. Yeah. And look, to be fair, it's not that in the past there haven't been people who have tried to fake elections or people who have successfully faked elections. Are you telling me that corruption is baked into the human condition? I know. I know. I just thought I should caveat that with the fact that I'm more sceptical of claims of fake elections because I live in the age of Trump, just in case anybody's listening to this in 15 years. And I don't for a second believe that elections in America have been faked like now. (laughs) Mm. But I acknowledge that, sure, there have in the past been such things. Yeah, historically, there have been cases of of fraudulent elections and, you know, not dissimilar to things that we've seen across the 20th and even the 21st century in some situations, um, but not, we would note, in the US. Yeah, I just think that Trump is a very dangerous person and that's probably why he's not getting elected. God God can only hope that it continues that way. <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. Political stance over. <laughs> Where is there? Just a little excerpt on our on our leftism again. <laughs> well, you know, I don't you know what these days I don't even think it's leftism. I just think it's called being sane and recognizing ah. <laughs> recognizing a dangerous person when you see it. Ah, <laughs> uh, judgment, judgment, judgment. Anyway, um, so unfortunately, the tribunes couldn't really do anything about this situation. They can't go after Atratinus, not just because he's smugly sitting there pretending that he's all innocent. but also because he is a military tribune with consular power and therefore his office affords him some protection oh does it now well he he should have imperium but it doesn't mean that his body's inviolable no somebody could run up to him and punch him in the face (laughs) if only someone would do that to donald trump (laughs) oh dear no don't make him a martyr guys leave him untouched anyway so instead 
the Tribune decide that they go to go after Atratinus's cousin, who is our old friend Gaius Sempronius, the incompetent general from 423. (laughs) (laughs) When in doubt, return to the guy that failed on the battlefield, as if he hasn't experienced enough humiliation. (laughs) Oh, he thought he got away with it, but not this time. So they decide they're going to prosecute him with the help of another Tribune, one Marcus Canuleus for his conduct in the war against Savolsky. The Tribunes also decide they're going to bring up the way that the Senate is splitting up the public lands because Gaius Sempronius had always been against this. Shocker. (laughs) A patrician being against the splitting up of public lands in a particular way? What? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we're really playing into the stereotypes this year, aren't we? Goodness yeah. me, patricians, what are you doing to yourselves? <laughs> well, the, the reason why they've brought this up is very strategic. It's very clever, actually, very devious. They know that he's held this stance on public lands. And so what they're hoping is it'll be like a red rag to a bull. They're thinking he's going to either act a certain, like he's going to act a couple of ways. He could either maintain his attitude that he's historically held and therefore piss off the plebeians which will obviously probably not work in his favour with this whole prosecution thing going on. Considering they're coming after him because they're already annoyed, yes. Yeah, exactly. Or he would back down on this issue and the patricians would be like, class traitor, and start caring about him. (laughs) I see. The old political wedge. All right. Yeah. I'm excited to see which way he goes. Okay. So Sempronius decides that it's most important to do right by Rome. Be to hell with his own future. (laughs) That is not revealing about what his stance is going to be. (laughs) Okay, okay, yeah, no. See, he basically says, to hell with my own future. I'm going to stick to my guns over the land issue. So he goes with option A. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. He did not want the tributes to get any credit for, you know, anything that they're doing here. So he points out that the tribunes actually are being very cynical themselves. They don't actually care about the division of public lands. They're just using this to get him. So he sees through their plan because he's also deviously clever. (laughs) I mean, he would say that, though, but historically the Tribune of the Plebs have always been interested in land redistribution, so there's an easy comeback for that claim. I know. I'm like, well, okay, like maybe maybe they are being very clever in the way that they use this issue. But there's a reason that they bring it up because you've spoken on this issue in the past. It is an ongoing issue, Sempronius. Anyway, so he decides, I'm not going to be cowed. He says, they can try all their dirty tricks, those stupid tribunes, think they're so clever. But I, I am brave. I am patrician. I will not back down, not for one second. (laughs) That man's asking for a punch in the face. Exactly. Well, I mean, yes, but of course the patricians are just like, we're falling even more in love with you, Sempronius. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I'm just going to gaze into those cold, lacking in empathy eyes and (laughs) be like, that's my man. That's my patrician right there. And he says, the Senate should not value me or any individual so much that they aren't making the right choices for Rome. They should always be acting in Rome's best interests. Okay, so getting even more selfless by the second. (laughs) Well, and there's a nice sort of didacticism built into that. I should say didactic. 
skepticism, mm. uh, get all of my syllables out while I'm going to say something. Because part of what is happening here is this is kind of like a training manual for patricians in some respect, this kind of source material, because it's it's like, well, if you want to be in this very elite group, part of what you have to do is you have to decide what's best for Rome. And yeah. they don't make the sort of critical distinction that maybe what's best for Rome might also just always be what's best for them as as the elite. But this idea that somehow the way that you frame things rhetorically is around what is best for the city and, and hence for everything. Yeah, exactly. So Sempronius then has to trot off to his trial. Let's see how this works out for him. So he decides to defend himself naturally. I mean, who could do a better job? Clever. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Although, of course, this is not this is not necessarily super unusual in ancient Roman standards. Like usually if you're watching a television show these days and a character makes a choice to defend themselves, it's either because they're a hero and a genius or they're the villain. <laughs> yeah, they either know everything about the law and they're going to be fine or they know yeah. nothing about the, the law and it's going to be a spectacular failure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as you say, we can't really speak to what's going on in Rome at this point in time in terms of exactly what a patrician's education looks like. But if I'm using what I know from later on, he would be trained in public speaking and he would have some experience with rhetoric. So he would. Yeah, he would not only have that rhetorical training, one would assume, but also be well versed in the laws at play. Exactly. So that's part of that's part of the uh, elite education, if you like. So. Yeah, exactly. So the senators, of course, because they love him so much, because he's just been super honourable and selfless throughout this whole affair as far as they're concerned, they try very hard to soften the plebs up before a ver- you know, before his verdict is rendered. However, it doesn't work. <laughs> Yay for me, it's stick to your guns. <laughs> um, and so he ends up being fined 15,000 mighty fine assets. Mm. Yes, a, uh, it sounds like a significant sum, but it is, uh, I guess, it, maybe it is. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a decent sum. If we think it about does, we, it, does we sound had, like a reasonable amount of money to be fined. <laughs> yeah, it is a decent sum. If we think about, we actually had a trial uh, not that long ago when, again, when we were dealing with the aftermath of 423 and the spectacular mess that Sempronius made, there was uh, another patrician who found themselves on trial, Posthumius for his conduct in battle from a few years before 423, and he was fined 10,000 asses. So Okay. All right. So it is more. It is this more. Is, this is upping the ante in terms of fining. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, anyway, so that is, I hope, the last we hear of Sempronius because he has been haunting us. <laughs> He's had a rough trot these last few years. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, well, he'll have to pay his fine. Either that or he runs away to try and find a way out of it. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, this is where I segue to a vessel story. Mm. Yeah. So, Why, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So we've got a vestal virgin being charged with unchastity, and I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to let you tell me. <laughs> All right. So our key characters at play here uh, is the Pontifex Maximus, Spurius Manucius, and our Vestal Virgin, Postumia. So we can assume that she comes from the Postumius Gens, so one of these elite patrician families, and that's fine. But she finds herself, and we don't know quite initially like 
uh, how that might happen. It doesn't seem to be attached necessarily to the other politics that's going on, but it is often the case that the way that Vestal Virgins are treated does link into the other politics that their family members and Gens colleagues are experiencing. Well, funnily enough, I mean, we were just talking about we, one of her We relatives. do have a posthumous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was just, he was just found himself in trouble and was fined, like, not long before. And I actually think we, us from, I think we were talking about the fact that it seems like there actually are some problems with the posthumous family at this point in the Republic in terms that they seem to be I think it's them and uh, and the other family that they're allied to, which I think is the Sempronii, maybe? It's, it's one of them. But anyway, yeah, it seems like the Posthumii and their, their allies might have been going through a bit of a tough time and potentially been involved in some sort of rivalry for who's going to be the preeminent patrician gens in Rome at this point in time. Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that can happen to Vestal Virgins is that they get dragged into that broader politics, which makes sense. They're elite women drawn from elite families and they have a legacy of continuity that is not the same as what happens for the male members of their family. Mm. So what we what we tend to see in the political arena directly is that people hold posts for about a year. Uh, they get brought in, they do their thing, and they flow back out again and there's a new set of elections and some new patricians come in. Yes. And you can have repeats of people over the years, that's fine, but there is always a system of choosing them again. It's not like they have a legacy where they just keep going, not in this period of Rome's history. But for Vestals, it's quite different because they're selected for ritual purposes. And even though ritual purposes is always sort of in a relationship with political purpose, they're choosing is done very differently and the length of time that they're in their role is very different as well. So they're chosen quite young between the ages of six and 10, and they serve for a minimum of 30 years in the role. And these are visibly public women in the sense that they have things that they are tasked to do that they have to be present in the public space for. And this is not to suggest that Roman women in general weren't in the public space, they definitely were, but people are expecting to see the Vestals at certain events. They have a, they have a, an actual public role to perform. They're not just they out. Do. <laughs> They're not just out and about doing yeah. some shopping or going from place to place and things like that. Or, you know, they're, they've got a place to be and they've got a task to do and their relationship to the gods is an important one for ensuring the broader Pax Deorum that Rome subscribes to which yeah. is to be in right relationship with the divine. Yeah, and certainly compared to other elite women, like I think we can agree that obviously the lower down the class you go, the less anybody cares like what you do in terms of what, how, you know, how you're conducting yourself in public. But for our elite women of this time, it would seem that the ideal is for them to be quite circumspect with their behaviour in public and certainly to have a level of seclusion to their lives in terms of who they interact with, what time of day they're interacting with people and that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And women sort of fall under the protection of their part of familias, generally speaking. So this means that those women are under the power of a broader father figure. That might be their direct father. It might be the grandfather further up. Um, whoever is the chief man of the family at that point in time, always the oldest guy. But the Vestals, it's a little bit different because once they are brought into the Vestal Virgin cult, 
they are removed from their natal family in a technical sense, which is interesting, but it's mm. obviously and also an incomplete kind of process because it's not like they change their name or anything. They retain the name that is suggestive of the gens they belong to. So everybody knows which family they come from. Sure. But there's a sort of technicality where they no longer fall under the potestas of their paterfamilias. They now fall under the potestas of their pontifex maximus. Yes. There's still a man in the picture. There's always a man in the picture. <laughs> yeah, but certainly, as you've highlighted, particularly as we go later in time in Rome's history, we still see them having family loyalty and being, as you say, being caught up in family affairs. And I checked it. It was uh, the Postumia and the Quintii that I was talking about before. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Not the Sempronia. Um, but, yeah, that, as you say, they, they do still have those ties to their birth families, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can take the kid out of the family, but can you take the family out of the kid? (laughs) So Postumia is going around doing her business, but she does find herself accused of this crime that's very particular called incestum, which is often translated as unchastity because we really don't have a good word to describe the semantic field for incestum in English. Unchastity sounds unwieldy, and indeed it is. (laughs) So in Kestum is this covers both sort of behaviors, it covers appearance, and there's a sense in which it ties into broader social concepts about morality, mm. basically. And it's like, are you behaving in the right kind of way? Are you appearing in the right kind of way? Do you seem to have a modest connection between the way you are in the world and the way that people perceive you? And it sort of functions as covering everything from the thoughts of the person involved uh, to the way in which they behave with their body in the physical realm. Right. So it covers all sorts of things. So incestum is often thought about as just being a loss of virginity, but mm-hmm. it covers much more than that. Okay. And we, we can see that instantly when it comes to posthumia because what she's accused of is basically adorning herself uh, in a way that suggests that, you know, she's a little bit open and free in her demonstration of her personality. She has, she is described in Plutarch as having a ready laugh and overbold talk when she's in men's company. Now it might be the case that she also has a ready laugh and overbold talk when she's in women's company, but the men aren't paying attention to that. So that's not what she's accused of. This may (laughs) just be her personality. A woman having a personality? I don't think so. That's not appropriate. Please put that away. Nobody wants to see it here. That personality, she seems to be having a good time at this party and I cannot abide by that. Something must be going wrong. Exactly. Yeah, so the other thing that she's got going on is that she has a penchant for dressing attractively. Goodness knows what that means. Chances are she's just dressing the way that's comfortable for her. And much like in the modern day, a woman's dress does not tell you anything about what's going on with her personally. I don't know. It's not an invitation. Is she wearing a mini skirt? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, somebody's found her attractive and that this becomes her problem then because she gets accused of this crime of incestum. And the problem with incestum is because it's, sort of covers everything from inappropriate uh, dress, you know, being a little bit vivacious, mm. all the way up to lost virginity. 
the ultimate punishment for Inkestum is being buried alive. Oh my goodness. It seems like an overreaction to some red lipstick. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that mascara, you must die. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, The Romans, they sort of, they go a bit overboard with this kind of stuff. So the problem from the Roman perspective and the way that they sort of understand these things is that if indeed Postumia is guilty of Incestum, that means that the relationship with the gods is not right. It has been severed in a particular way because her behavior in the physical realm, the things she thinks, what she wears, how she does things, all of those sorts of things contribute to her maintaining her responsibility within that broader sense of the Pax Deorum. Right. So there are six festivals. They all have to behave as uh, appropriately as possible from the Roman perspective of what is appropriate for them. And heaven forfend, you should have a ready laugh or some overbold talk. <laughs> I know, I do actually like the translation of Livy that I was reading. It says that uh, she got into trouble because of her clothing, as you've highlighted, but also the unmaidenly freedom of her wit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, she likes she likes a good uh, sneaky joke. So Yeah, I think uh, this, this for me was like a code of... If either you or Dr. G were ever transported back to ancient Rome to become vessels, you would definitely die. <laughs> Immediately be buried alive. Yeah, you would and this is why we dead. <laughs> this is why you do not time travel, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds like a great idea, but before you know it, you're in a chamber somewhere at a Termini station. Yeah, terrible, terrible. Yeah, she has apparently an easygoing character, more easygoing than befits a young woman. Mm. And so this accusation of incestum is raised against her. Now, the thing with these kinds of accusations is that any Roman citizen can make them. So it really oh, doesn't take okay. Yeah, it really doesn't take much for them to happen if somebody has decided that, you know, they've got an issue with your family or they genuinely have a suspicion that, you know, maybe they've done something that they shouldn't have. Uh, anyone can come up to the Pontifex Maximus and be like, oi, uh, I don't know about that, Sheila. Hey. So... That kind. (laughs) A little bit outrageous, yeah. Yeah. So that situation can happen. Anyway, I mean, the good news uh, for Postumia is that Spurious Manuchius, the Pontifex Maximus, seems to be like a genuinely reasonable dude. Mm. And this is good news. So rather than finding her guilty, he does not. Um, He takes the case to the Pontifical College. So there's a group of lower pontifices underneath him they go and take the case to a vote and they find in her favor yay Yay! Yay! mini skirts red lipstick here we come postumia wins the day yeah Uh, now unfortunately there are some stipulations that they make to her on the result (laughs) (laughs) she is no longer able to make jokes (laughs) <laughs> wow what a no, sentence. <laughs> she must abstain from jokes no more of that <laughs> yeah just lay off all right just lay off the comedy leave that yes. to the patricians and the Pelagians. i mean i think you can see that we're unintentionally hilarious <laughs> we know what's funny you don't know what's funny okay yeah, class warfare that's what's funny yeah you know i i think it's like the classic scenario where you know, women in comedy have found it really hard to break through for a long time. They fought a lot of stigma. And here's Postumia. It all starts here, yeah. Postumia is on the front line of that being like, but guys, 
I'm hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I don't think so. No more. No. The other thing is that she is asked to dress with sanctity rather than elegance. Ooh. Yeah. So she has to put away the sexy clothes. Oh. Yeah. No more showing off the figure in a way that appeals to you. Uh, you must dress like you're wearing a Hessian bag and preferably just put on a Hessian bag. In fact, we've got one here. Here it is. Go yeah. for it. And, and go for neutrals. You know, beige, beige, beige. We're all about the beige. Oh, we love a good beige. There's nothing that says like upper middle class aspirational than beige. Yeah, or off white. <laughs> Eggshell. Ecru. <laughs> I I also kind of like what Plutarch has to say about this. Okay. So Spurious Manucius reminded her that the language she used should have no less dignity than her life. Oh <laughs> wow. <laughs> That is a good one. I'm going to remember that, actually. I'm going to use that against my students. <laughs> <laughs> Basically saying, like, you're a Vestal Virgin. You really have to act like one. <laughs> well, okay. Like, I mean, yes, I do understand that there's, you know, certain standards of behavior that are professional. But then again, when you consider that being a Vestal is a 24-7 gig, and when you consider the kind of workplace requirements, it's like the fact that I find it increasingly ludicrous that all around the world we force people to have these uncomfortable and restrictive, unflattering office clothes. I mean, look, actually, I shouldn't say unflattering. Sometimes they are very attractive, but nobody likes to wear them. Why do we force ourselves to? Like, there is no... It increasingly baffles me that we don't just dress to be comfortable, to be weather-appropriate, and to be sustainable. This is like the, the like the whole concept of the man's tie. Yeah. And it's like, like I love a good 19th century cravat, but yes. nobody can give me a good reason why anybody in the modern world has to wear the kind of ties that currently exist. I agree. Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm just like, look, if people want to wear office wear because that's their jam, go for it. But I will never understand why workplaces are like, oh, no, you have to take this seriously. You really need to wear something made from, you know, polyester and you, and you need to wear, you know, you need to wear a suit, you know. Mm, no, I think this relates to possibly the distinction that has emerged over time, that there is a dichotomy to be had between your private self and your public self. Yes. And in a way, this ties in very nicely to what the Romans are doing throughout their whole sort of time as well mm. because what Manuchius is saying to Postumia in this moment is that actually your job is a 24-7 job being a Vestal Virgin is not about getting downtime it is mm. about always adhering to the principles that brought you into this space so you joking around and you wearing something that looks all right is not doing the role justice it is it is in fact trying to bring something about your private self, if you like, into this public sphere. And we can't have that. So it's like, you know, she's now in a situation where I'm pretty sure what happens to Postumia, I'm just going to, you know, write my historical novel now, is that <laughs> Postumia starts, she does take up this advice and she does curtail her public self because we certainly don't hear about her coming back for another accusation of incestum. Thank goodness. Mm. But I imagine she goes on with the bawdy jokes and she goes on with her dress-ups in the safe space of the House of the Vestals where she's hanging out with her sisters doing the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, one can only hope. I mean, I do understand it. Being a Vestal, it is, I suppose, 
kind of like the way we think of certain professions as being a vocation, not just a job. And so I can kind of understand that. The, the difference is, of course, that she was forced to take this position as a child before she was maybe able to fully comprehend the way that her life was going to you know, be shaped and changed by this very lengthy commitment. <laughs> yeah, this is a massive commitment to take on. And it's one that invariably, I would say, the candidates don't choose for themselves. Mm. Um, it's about their physical ritual fitness to be chosen. It depends on them coming from an elite family. And if you're an appropriate candidate and the time is right that we need a new vessel virgin, chances are you're going to end up in a life situation that you did not choose for yourself, but happen to have been the chosen candidate for. So the idea that Postumia might be railing against some of these pressures, just trying to be herself and enjoy a little bit of life while she also has to do this thing that goes for years and years and years is not surprising to me at all. And But I'm really pleased that Manuchius allows that to be a disciplinary action yes. rather than a live burial situation. Yeah, definitely. And look, I, I also should say, I'm not being naive here. I do understand that when you put on certain outfits, it does help you to get into a certain mindset. And I do also appreciate that whether we like it or not, humans are kind of superficial visual creatures at the best of times. So I do understand that there is a certain way that you present yourself, obviously, in certain scenarios, which are going to be expected whether you like it or not. I'm not naive. I just mean, I guess it's because I, because I work in a profession where we're quite active a lot of the time and our work is very unpredictable. And some schools I've, I've been at, not all schools and certainly not the school that I'm currently at, are very restrictive with what you're allowed to wear as a teacher. And it's kind of weird because you're wearing these like quite expensive, fancy clothes when you're like running around and you might be walking through mud and you might be kneeling down all the time. And it, sometimes it just makes sense to have freedom of movement and not to be worried about ruining these expensive clothes. And, you know, and, and also because I, you know, because I'm a person that's very concerned about climate change and that sort of thing, I'm increasingly a fan of clothing that is sustainable. And to me, clothing that is sustainable is clothing that you can wear in your private life and your public life so that you don't have to have so many clothes and are also made from certain fabrics. So I guess that's why I'm a bit like, Ugh. but I know that more, more and more workplaces I know are being freer with what employees can wear. <laughs> and hopefully... If Postumia is ever coming back into this world, reincarnated, uh, she would be having a great time as well with a lot more freedom to express herself as she pleases and to wear whatever she wants. Exactly, exactly. I guess what I'm trying to say is Postumia should be the woman I use on my logo for more sustainable workplace clothing. <laughs> <laughs> done and done. Well, I reckon this is probably a good place to wrap up. Well, no? almost. Wait, almost. there's more. Yeah, I do have a little bit to add to that. So as I said to you, when we spoke about the trial of Postumius and his colleague a few episodes ago from their own misconduct in battle, or alleged misconduct, I should say, although uh, I think Postumius was found guilty, so he can't sue me for saying that. Uh, we talked about the fact that there was potentially this rivalry going on amongst the patricians. And I just wanted to add that I was reading up a little bit on this. Uh, I, I said I didn't read up on it, but I unintentionally did. I stumbled across something. <laughs> that the Postumii and the Sempronii were often very closely connected families through marriage. 
So, mm. whilst this Vestal case may seem to come out of nowhere in Livy's narrative, if we think about the fact that we've got Sempronius, who had seemed to escape prosecution earlier, now he finds himself on the chopping block. If we put those cases together, it's possible that these families were being attacked. And what the source I was reading suggested was that possibly what we're seeing is not only rivalry for like who's the greatest patrician gens or something like that, but that maybe certain patrician families are advocating particular policies. So, for example, the posthumiae may have been on the side of more aggressive expansion for Rome, whereas other families like the Furii and the Manlii, who we might remember are families represented as military tribunes with consular power in this year, were not as keen to to expand Rome at quite that pace and in quite that way. So it might be a matter of policies, I suppose, and factionalism. I think, yeah, I think family factionalism we can definitely see as a an ongoing thread when Vestals pop up in the narrative history. So thinking about what is that broader political context, which we've navigated very deeply or as deeply as we can, given mm. our source material. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. You know, it, it seems to me like these sorts of things don't come out of nowhere. And the the idea that... Uh, the thing that they're that vestals are accused of, it's always the same crime, and it's always a subjective kind of situation. So there's very, very few ways to be able to verify uh, that an incestum has happened. You know, uh, you gone and done an incestum? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very, it's very hard to back something like that up with actual evidence. So. You can see the political thread uh, underpinning that kind of situation because it's a question that's always related to the idea of Roman morality and particularly how it functions for women through that patriarchal lens. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can't obviously know for certain what exactly was going on within the patrician class at this point in time we don't even know if there is really a patrician class at this time but I think tying into (laughs) what we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes about this idea that the idea that the Roman state really wasn't formalized at this point in time if we go back to what you and I both alluded to which is this theory that we've really just got like warlords who have particular control over maybe certain areas and they have clients and people who are loyal to them and this is kind of more the situation we've got going in Rome rather than elections and consuls and that sort of thing if we tie that together I think we can definitely say whilst we don't know what they're fighting about it obviously makes total sense that there is this (laughs) constant rivalry because that's how a kind of warlord era works like you might have kind of divided up turf between particular families and there might be pieces of you know there might be periods of stability but there's also going to be those times when they you don't agree or you can't work together or you decide you want more (laughs) i gotta eliminate this whole family and all of their influence in order to increase my own now i do have one final detail from livy for this year Mm. which is a little side note livy loves to finish on these very anticlimactic side notes (laughs) which is that the Greek-controlled city of Kume was taken by the Campanians. Oh, yeah, very interesting. So there is a Kume in Italy, and it's on the west coast, 
and it is in Campania. So this is all making sense. This is this is supposed to be where the Sibylline Sibyls are. The the cave the cave at Kumai. Interesting power dynamics happening in the south. Yeah, well, I thought I'd give a little bit of uh, background to this detail because I realized that I just sort of went, oh, yeah. But then I thought, actually, I don't really know what he's talking about, so I'm going to look up, look it up. So <laughs> the Campanian region, as you alluded to, it is below where the Volscians are positioned. So it's a bit further afield than the Romans generally venture with their military campaigns. Yeah, you, you're thinking, if you're, if you're thinking modern Italy, you're thinking more Naples. And south. Yes, exactly, yes. Uh, and this is like the region where Spartacus wreaks havoc eventually. But at, thi- mwah, <laughs> exactly. but at this point in time, it's actually probably kind of like a more distant place for, for Rome because they're only really interacting with the people that are directly around them. And it's also on the other side of Volscian territory. So it's like, you know, in order to get there, you have to get through the Volsci. And it's like, I mean, that's just always a nightmare because they're kind of always yeah. up for a fight yeah, exactly. instead. So... <laughs> There have been these Campanian and Greek settlements to the south really all the way back to, uh, in the 9th century. Like that's when we start to see these, uh, these peoples moving into the area and, and taking over. And it seems that they were even more powerful than Rome in between the sort of 9th and 6th century. So we're talking about probably very early Rome, like technically before, you know, the traditional date of 753, but the hut. The hut period. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this this region that is known as Magna Graecia has been continuously colonised by the Greeks for centuries before we see the rise of Rome further to the north. And so there is a sense in which there is the, the native Italic peoples and the Greek colonisers have been in this sort of push and pull with each other for quite some time in the southern regions of Italy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So these areas are powerful in the sort of regal period of Rome's history, I suppose we'd say. And then we see a bit of a decline. And it's interesting because there had been, we think, actually relatively strong connections between the Etruscans and the people in Campania, even though they are in different regions. There does seem to have been connection between them in this regal period of Rome, let's say. But then there had been two major events that had limited Etruscan power in Campania, and this is where we start to see, I suppose, the the gradual decline of the Etruscans as a, a major power in Italy. So one of them we have talked about, which is we're going back to early Republic, allegedly, <laughs> 505, 504, there was... 505, that is know, early Republic. Know, yeah. <laughs> uh, the battle that had occurred near Ericia, where the Cumaeans and the Latins were victorious against the Etruscans. Interesting. Yeah, so this is where, these are the kind of stories that sort of really uh, put into play this idea of like how far south were the Etruscans mm. and how independent are the Romans as a people from Etruscan culture? Because if the Etruscans and Cume are fighting over a reacher, like that is already more south than Rome itself is. Yeah, well, I mean, this, because this time, the reason why I looked into this was because I remember that a couple of episodes ago, I also mentioned a takeover of Capua. And Etruscans had been in, mentioned in that story as well. So that's why I was like, I'm going to look into this a little bit. Anyway, the other event was in 474. So again, still kind of early-ish Republic, 
where a combination of Cumaean and Syracusan ships had won a battle against the Etruscans. Well, well, well. Syracuse is now in play. Syracuse, that's right, yeah. So we start to see the limitation of the Etruscan power in the south, and increasingly we see Oscan influence. Now, I think we've probably mentioned Oscan before, but... We have, we have. So this is one of the Italic language groups of Italy, and... If I'm remembering rightly, and maybe correct me on this because I'm just going off the top of Mm. my head, I think the Oscan language is sitting to the east of Rome. Correct, yes. And it's generally most associated, I think, and again, this is off the top of my head, (laughs) I think it's mostly associated with the Samnite people. Is that correct? Mm, Yes, I think so. So, and, and we, we still see traces of Oscan in, like, Pompeii, for example. Like, when we look at the ruins, there are still Oscan inscriptions in Pompeii. So it's, it's definitely, as you say, a, a language group, and it definitely has deep ties to Italy <laughs> and the various people that live there. So it seems that, if we look at the bigger picture for a moment, that what we're looking at potentially in the 420s, um, and, and probably also, to be honest, for decades before as well, a time of movement of peoples, Dr. G. Mm, There is a great movement and shift going on of people either pulling away as their power wanes and then people coming in as their power starts to grow. Yeah, and and, and I mean, there's possibly a range of reasons why people are moving, but particularly we see see the movement of people from the central Apennines into the region of Campania. And this is this ties into the story that I told about Capua being captured in 423, which seemed to come out of absolutely freaking nowhere. But it's probably because we're so focused on Rome that we're forgetting that there is this broader movement happening around Rome. And this will have an impact, of course, because one of Rome's major enemies on the horizon are the Samnites. Ah, uh, yes. So I think part of this ties in nicely to some of the events that have come up in our narrative episodes previous to this one, where we've been looking at the way in which it is a difficult climactic period Mm. in Italy, where there's been a whole bunch of sort of failed harvests, there's been various pestilences come through, and this has really shaken up things for the Romans. They've had some real problems around this. So if we take that as a broader sense of there might be some like shifting climactic interferences happening in the, in the na- natural environment that are changing the way that people are having to find food. In particular, if you're from a mountainous region, it's probably affecting you quite differently to people who live in a more plains area where you can do a more um, sophisticated sort of harvest and organized sort of planting of crop. And the mountainous region's while you can do some of that, you're more limited because of the geography. So if the consequences that are having these negative impacts for the people who are not in the mountains, in these plains regions, are also affecting people in the mountains, it's going to lead to shifts of population as they have to find new sources of food. They have to find, like, food security is massive. So if you've got people who are waning in power, part of that waning in power is directly tied to can we sustain a population in these regions or do we need to pull back? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem. We don't have enough information about 
exactly what is causing this movement of people. And we don't really know exactly what's going on because if we look at the written sources from Rome's perspective, we have these sudden random mentions from Livy where it seems like it's a really violent takeover that happens, you know, in sudden spurts or, you know, there's a sudden moment where a city is captured and, you know, that's the that's the way that it appears. But if we look at the archaeology, it seems like there actually wasn't really a sudden violent change where the Samnites suddenly came into power in this region, um, as you say, kind of to the east and a bit to the south, but actually quite a gradual shift as we start to see more remnants with you know vestiges of Oscan language turning up so that's a bit of a sign there and it's possible that what we're dealing with is you know any number of situations like it could be that there were issues in Campania between an increasing Oscan populace and an Etruscan elite okay it could be that we're dealing with maybe an oppressed population fighting against their rulers it's really hard to tell exactly what's going on between the Oscans, Etruscans, and Greeks, and whether it's even anything to do with their ethnicity at all. It might just be, you know, the the class nature of it, and where we're dividing them up into the ethnic groups or the language groups or whatever. But certainly, it testifies to the fact that this is not just a tough period for Rome to go through, which we've mentioned before. But there are definitely some interesting and difficult changes happening in the broader Italian area. Mm, it's really fascinating, isn't it? Thank you so much for delving into that. That's uh, I think that's going to be good context for us as we move forward in time. Well, I'd never really thought about it because I was like, oh, yeah, they're Campanians. And then I'm like, wait a second, who are wait the Campanians? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, Campania? <laughs> yeah, I, I suddenly realised that. I'm like, actually, I probably should look that up. And the more I looked it up, I'm like, oh, this is actually more complicated than I thought. <laughs> Uh, good times, good times. All right, we are at the official moment. <laughs> it is time, it is- Dr. G. It's time for the partial pick. <laughs> Thank you, Igor, not Dr. G impersonating Igor. <laughs> uh, uh, Igor is currently on leave. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dr. G, so tell me, what is the partial pick all about? Oh, look, it is a great time. Rome can win 50 gold eagles. There are 10 possible eagles in each category up for grabs. Our first category is military clout. Ooh, no. (laughs) There's none of that going on in this episode. Yeah, we've got a lot of politics, but we don't have a lot of uh, fighting as such. Yep. It's purely (laughs) domestic politics year all round. All right, well, how about diplomacy? Hmm, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's kind of diplomatic of Manukius to, you know, allow Postumia to not be buried alive. Okay, okay, this is where I always get stuck. Yes, okay, you could say it's diplomatic, but is it diplomacy? I don't think so. I mean... (laughs) I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help Rome out to get some kind of score, really. (laughs) Let Rome suffer. It deserves it. (laughs) Didn't they put that guy on trial and charge him a whole bunch of... Is that diplomatic? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely no. Decidedly no. (laughs) All right. All right. We shall move on. So far, it's zilch from two. That's true. Uh, Expansion. Again, no. You generally don't get expansion without military action, so... 
Afraid not. What if they expanded their minds? I don't think <laughs> that there's much evidence of that. <laughs> Just thought I'd try. Just thought yeah, I'd try. I mean, I mean, sure, somebody else is expanding. We've got this takeover of Kume, but that's not the Romans. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, yeah, the Campanians are doing all the heavy lifting this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Nothing for expansion. No. Weirtus. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it long and hard thought. I mean, look, okay, I don't know. How do we feel about Sempronius? I despise him, but that, oh, that, that was, that's a rhetorical but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is very weird to us uh, for the patrician to take the rhetorical stance that he's going to be hardline for the good of Rome. <laughs> It is. Is it? That's the thing. Is it weird to us, or is it just you know, patrician stubbornness at its finest? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. It is a patrician. Ugh, it is moral. No. I know. I'm yeah. gonna. I'm gonna say no. I was playing devil's advocate. It's okay. Uh, the answer is no. That's not weird to us. I think weird to us also has to involve the physical in some way. If the body is not on the line, I don't think we're really talking about weird to us here. I agree. I just thought it's a you very know specific type uh, value within masculinity for the yeah. Romans. I, I'm fighting against my own bias against the patricians, and I want to make sure. I am giving them the benefit of the doubt, even though they are the royalist of douchebags most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. So our subtotal currently still zero. All right. So everything hinges on this final category. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. The citizen score. Was this a good time in Rome to be a citizen? It doesn't sound like the worst time in that if we think about absence of evidence. Okay, so there's no military action going on. So even though we don't have anyone testifying that the citizens are doing cartwheels in the streets, it's got to be a a benefit to them that they're not, you know, risking death, (laughs) risking destitution. That's got to be a plus. Yeah, they're not suffering under a levy and then having to gather their equipment and head off into the sunset, never to be sure if they'll see their families again. It's a great time to be a citizen in that in that respect. <laughs> You're not being treated terribly. Well done. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So there's that. But there's also the fact that Gaius Sempronius is actually finally held accountable because, I mean, look, I can understand that sometimes things just don't go the way they're supposed to when you're the commander and it's not necessarily fair to put you on trial just because it didn't work out in a way that you couldn't necessarily control. I do kind of love that the Romans do that, though, being like, you failed the battle. That is a crime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your behaviour was criminal. No, really, I'm going to put you on trial. Criminal negligence, I tell you. That's it. That's this is it. the thing. If, if we are to believe our sources, and to be honest, I don't see why I wouldn't in the sense of Livy is clearly on the patrician side 99% of the time. So if he is willing to say that Sempronius did not prepare for battle and was just like, eh, Fortuna will take care of it, then you know what? You actually are liable for that like that actually is criminal negligence that's like the definition of criminal negligence you just list you know you've just wasted everybody's time you've also put a lot of people's lives on the line and caused death and heartache for people and their families so yeah you actually should be held accountable for that so i actually think that this is a good thing and the fact that the people aren't swayed by the Senate trying to sweet talk them, 
I think that's a positive. So I'm willing to maybe give a two for the citizens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it could even possibly get up higher than like to me, the maximum ceiling would be five because it's not it's not like things went really well. It's just that things didn't go badly. So I'm like, we're dealing with a glass half full or half empty situation. So five would be the maximum. And I'm happy to settle for two. Yeah. And I mean, actually, when you think about it, I mean, it's it's not great that no plebeians get elected, but you see, Livy puts the blame for that on the plebeians. He doesn't talk I think about... I, I feel like that's misplaced and Livy should know better. <laughs> no, I know. But when you think about it, this is actually, you know what? Livy is a freaking genius because when you think about it, the way he spun this narrative, it is artwork. He's first of all blamed the plebeians for not electing their own as quaestors because the consular relatives are just so amazing. They're falling all over themselves to get to the ballot box. When we full know that if the if the voting system is anything like what we've got later on, or you know anything like they say Servius Tullius and whatever set it up as, they are absolutely cut out of the voting system if they are truly you know lower down. Now look, there are wealthy plebeians out there. I know this is an entirely you know yeah, but they're going to be sitting. But like best case scenario, they're sitting in one of the lower down voting groups and they don't get a chance. I mean, they should be rising up and getting angry about that, but they have to change the whole system. It's not it's not enough to try and get somebody elected. And it's like they actually need to overthrow the systemic issue in order. And I can see how they're like, OK, well, we need to get in there so we can change it. And the problem is that the system's designed to keep them out. So... It's it's a massive issue. That's what I mean. It, it's genius. Like the system designed to keep them out, and yet it's their fault when their own candidates don't get elected. That's genius point number one. <laughs> Second of all, Livy then sets this up as this is the excuse that the tribunes are using to go against Sempronius when actually he absolutely should have his ass nailed to the wall because he absolutely did the wrong thing. He is a dick and there's no getting around it. Like, And yet he set it up so like, oh, the tribunes are being so diabolically clever and they're totally using this situation as, you know, this pathetic front for going against him when they absolutely should have prosecuted him when they had the chance previously. And I don't know why they didn't. And then to add insult to injury, it's Posthumia's fault that she's dressing inappropriately and laughing too much, Dr. G. So he is blaming <laughs> How dare the she have victims. a good time? Yeah. If ever there was an episode uh, that yes. shows systematic unfairness, this is the episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Partial Historians, where it's clear what our partiality yeah. is. <laughs> it's in the name. Don't get mad. <laughs> we, we did try to warn you. We did. Yeah. No, but I, just, I just think it's actually, it is actually artwork, the way that he's written this particular account, reading against what he's telling me. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really useful to to come to the source material with this kind of mindset because it encourages you to question why are we being told these things? And these are good questions for historians to always ask. And I'm thinking of you listeners because you too are historians. If you approach the material with the with the critical questions in mind, that's doing history. So when you look at this sort of stuff and you think to yourself, well, why are they positioning it this way? 
Who is the real target audience here? Who is getting the benefit and who is missing out on benefit? And how is that being leveraged against them? All of these kinds of questions really help you sort of see through some of the uh, very clever rhetorical structuring <laughs> that is, no, it is. That is at play. And that's the thing. Like if, if I were busy researching something and I was just dipping in and out of Livy, like, you know, reading the bits that were applicable to me, as you do when you're researching, you don't sit there and read Livy cover to cover because you need a section of Livy. What? I know. I know. <laughs> I'm giving such insight into the academic process here, but you don't do that. So you dip in and out, right? If I were just to dip in and I was on a deadline and I was just researching this, I would absolutely just read that and be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what happened. Cool. But the reason why I kind of love the fact that we move slowly, even though I'm sure everyone's like, move faster. <laughs> we literally can't because there's too many things to analyze. So <laughs> Yeah, but that's exactly it. When you actually slow down and look at it year by year, you're like, my God, this is genius. I mean, the line that this They've thing is really pushing, set up yeah. a trap, haven't they? <laughs> they have. Like, and you wouldn't necessarily question it because it just seems so matter of fact. It's just like, oh, yeah, they did that and they did that. And, look, obviously I'm not saying that I'm right. I can't prove that I'm right because it's a theory. But certainly I think, as you say, it's worth questioning why Livy has, or whatever his source before him was, why have they positioned the events in this flow? You know, like why, why have them connecting in this way and why be attributing certain motives to people in this way? And I, I think, personally, I think you can see a Roman elite perspective at play 100% of the time in the year 420. <laughs> I would agree, humbly, <laughs> based on the, the beautiful uh, interpretation of Livy that you've provided me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Maybe I'm just too suspicious, but, you know, what the hell. As you say, we didn't call the bundle of stories for nothing. People are here for our takes on things. <laughs> Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Been very excited to talk about some Vestal Virgins and to learn so much about the year 420 BCE from you, Dr. Rad. Indeed. I'll see you next time, Dr. G. Oh, and before we go, I'd like to thank our patrons for their ongoing and beautiful support. You guys make this podcast even better than it already is. Um, and so we appreciate that very much. And also just doing a bit of a shout out for our book, you want to hear about Rome and how it all began? We got you covered. We wrote a book on the Roman kings. We certainly did. There's lots of interesting things that happen, lots of conquests, lots of phalluses appearing when you least expect them. <gasps> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. You can find our sources, sound credits, and an automated transcript in our show notes. Our music is by Bettina Joy de Guzman. You too can support our show and help us to produce more engaging content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes and some bonus content. Today we'd like to send a special shout out to our newest Patreons, Steve, Roger, Space Floozy, Dr. Kate and Maple Leaf Aussie. You can also support us by buying us a coffee on Ko-fi. However, if all of these avenues are beyond your means, 
please just tell someone about the show or give us a five-star review. Be partial. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome. <laughs>